we are in a series called Sweep the Leg, all about Satan's cheap shots and how you and I can overcome them. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, I'm going to open up with a story here in just a moment, but while we're, we're kind of getting into things, take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Timothy. There's, there's two books called Timothy, First and Second Timothy. Go to the first one. You're going to be in chapter 4, and we're going to begin to read through this letter like we did last week and the weeks prior to it as we get into the scriptures this morning and look at some of the things the early church in Ephesus was dealing with. And to our surprise, you may just find out that some of their issues aren't too far different than our issues. You guys with me this morning? And Satan's traps aren't any different. His tactics aren't any, there's no secret. He does the same thing week in, week out, day in, day out. But oftentimes we, fa we fall for the same things over and over again. So this morning, we're going to pull back the curtain on the great, powerful Wizard of Oz this morning. We're going to look at how the enemy uses our circumstances and our situations against us. Father, be with us as we read from the scriptures this morning. Lord, let it minister to us and speak to us. And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our church right here in the heart of Kennesaw. That you would help us grow and to become more like you. Amen. What does it mean for you to honor someone? Think about it for just a second. What does it mean for you, as you're sitting in your chair, for you to give honor? It's interesting that we just had a moment where you honored Amy and I. Thank you. What does it look like for you to honor the person that you live with? What does it look like for you to honor mom, to honor dad, to honor a brother or a sister or a teacher, your neighbor? What does it look like for honor to exist regularly in our culture? Think about it. I was reading a story about a man named Bruce McKean. He's an Air Force veteran. And he lives in Martinsville, Indiana. And one of the things that's unique about Bruce is that he knows how to play the bugle. And he can play the bugle like a champ. And tragically, I think it was 2006, maybe been a little bit later, when, when the tragedy took place at Sandy Hook Elementary School, Bruce McKee organized... All of the local uh, servicemen who knew how to play the bugle, and they gathered in Martinsville, Indiana, in the town square, and they played taps. And they played it seven days straight at 7 p.m., and they organized it, literally, for it to be played around the entire United States for those who knew how to play it live. It was a powerful moment to honor those who had fallen and died. In such a tragic death. And on the seventh night, 
A young woman came to him and, and said, Bruce, I'm, I'm wondering if you could play taps for my dad, who's no longer with us, but he wasn't able to have military honors at his funeral. Would you be willing to come out next Friday and play it again and play it on behalf of my dad, who was never honored in such a way? And Bruce said, yes, but the word got out. And over a few days, hundreds and hundreds of names began pouring in to Bruce McKee. For names to be read of those who have served, those who had gone missing in action, those who had died defending their country, or those who had just lived in different communities but had never been able to have someone play at their family member's funeral who had served in the military. Maybe they couldn't afford it, or maybe they lived in a community where no one knew how to actually play it live on an actual bugle. And so hundreds of names pour in, and literally for the last 330 Fridays, Bruce has stood outside on his town square with his band of bugle players. And they have played, played taps at 7 p.m. on Friday night for over six and a half years. And they start the Friday night by reading the names, generally between 150 to 200 names. And then they, pray, they play the haunting melody of taps. And there are always family members in attendance, many of which have tears streaming down their faces. There are oftentimes little old men and, and women who, some who have tried to get back into dress uniform, who are in attendance. And there are almost always men and women in full salute. Bruce is in full soldier uniform along with his team of bugle players, and they are playing in honor of those who've gone before us. I love stories like this. I watched several videos, which you can look it up if you want. It's hard not to get emotional about it. I had taps played at my grandfather's funeral. Amy, my wife, had it played at her grandfather's funeral. I just recently had a funeral for my uncle. Same thing, because all of them had served in the military, and it doesn't matter how unemotional you might have been, at the beginning of the service or the beginning of the funeral, there's nothing like hearing someone be honored in such a way that, 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 that speaks to the depths of your heart. It moves you. It's emotional. And it's not just because there's music that's being played. There is something that resonates inside of us. We are made and designed to give honor, to live in such a way that's worthy of honor. We love movies where we see people living and acting in honorable ways because it moves against the grain, unfortunately, of our culture. For many of us, we do not live in environments where we readily give honor anymore. We don't even know what it looks like. The thought of giving honor to mom or dad or a boss is so foreign. We have no idea what it looks like. And so when we finally see it, it moves something inside of us. Definition of honor is to esteem, to value someone, to respect, and even revere them. I would submit to you this morning that honor is in our language. 
but rarely is it in our practice. We have maids of honor. We have the code of, first of all, the maid of honor or the bachelor, I mean, best man, excuse me. <laughs> the bachelor, that's a whole other message, okay? That show. But we all know, we all know what happens. We know what the maid of honor or the, 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 the best man, I can't even remember what he's called. Many times they're in charge of throwing the party, right? And anything and everything happens that has absolutely nothing to do with living honorably. In fact, it's often the absolute antithesis of what honor should actually look like. We have the code of honor. If you lived back in the day when someone thought you were lying, oftentimes you would say, Scout's honor. Right? We, we talk about honor, but rarely do we actually know what it looks like to live in such a way. We're going to change that today. You guys with me this morning? 1 Timothy chapter 4, 8 through 10. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there and read with me. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all Things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Verse 9, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's writing to a church that exists in Ephesus. And he's reminding them, hey, like working out, going to the gym, living the soldier's life. That's a good life. This is good for your body. But there's even something better that you need to exercise. And that's godliness, godly character, living in such a way that lives far beyond your earthly life. Living in such a way that's honorable, that's godly. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. I wrestled with this message a lot. I've never preached through this section in the way that I'm going to today. But Paul's writing to a culture that doesn't know how to honor very well. There are young leaders fighting with other young leaders. There are people who are teaching doctrines that are ridiculous and dumb and foolish. And people are sinking their teeth into it. There are young people who want to be recognized who aren't. There are older people who should be recognized, but they're living like knuckleheads. And so Paul is literally writing a letter with really practical explanations for how church life should work. And he says, man, this is a statement that deserves full acceptance, meaning, you guys, take this to the bank. If you will learn how to live godly, it will produce the kind of results that you really long for, that all these other things will never yield in your life. And furthermore, this is what deserves full acceptance, that th this is why we labor and strive. 
that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. That he died for our sins and then he rose again on the third day. This is what you need to put your hope in. This is what we live for. This is what gets us up out of bed. He is the Savior of all people. Jesus showed what he valued, honored, might I add. He honored you and I. This is a weird description of it, but just bear with me. Jesus showed what he valued and who he loved when he left heaven and gave his life as a ransom for you. The one who is most worthy of honor is the one who, in fact, bestows us with a crown of glory and honor. And if you put your faith in Jesus, God removes the shame and dishonor that accompanies a life of sin and credits us with the honor and holiness of Jesus' life. We call this the beautiful exchange. Jesus Christ died for you and I. He honors us. Those who are forgotten, those who are lost, those who are broken, those who are a train wreck, Jesus credits us with the honor that he deserves. Most people wanted to honor those with power and influence, money and fame. We call that in America celebrity. And my question for you, getting back to what it is it that you honor, church, if you're not careful, one of Satan's tactics for you and for me will to have you esteem and value all the same things that our culture esteems and values. Celebrity, fame, money, sex, power. But Jesus calls us to something different there's a different code of honor that you if you have put your faith in jesus are called to live by and while i am not exhausting today all the people that you should be honoring in your life he goes on to describe three people groups that you and i cannot compromise honoring and it's not what you're going to expect 1 Timothy chapter 5, 3 through 4. Paul immediately writes to this young church on who they need to honor. And he says, honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Most of you have never come to church and heard a message on honoring widows. Why? The Bible talks about honoring and caring for widows more than 80 times from cover to cover. Literally going on to say in James that your religion is worthless if you do not pay attention to the poor and the widow in your midst. Meaning we can talk a big talk and we can talk a big game, but if you are walking past and not caring for this particular group of people, this marginalized group of people, this forgotten group of people, this sometimes lost group of people, then you are ignoring the very central aspect of the gospel. That Jesus came for those 
who were forgotten and lost and who were broken. Now he goes on, and if you're reading the text, I'm not going to get into all the specifics today. Because Paul writes, and he gives lots of explanations and even lists and qualifications. We're not getting into that. I want you to capture the heart of it today. That what Jesus values, what God values, oftentimes is what our culture deems as valueless. Think about it for a second. We're called to value what the world considers valueless. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Now, if you think I'm getting ready to try to preach politics to you, I'm not. This is not about your border policy right now. I don't really care where you swing on walls and all that, that sort of stuff. What I care about is that your heart beats for the things that God, his heart beats for. And you know what his heart beats for? Those who've been forgotten, those who are broken, those who are lost, those who have no fathers to care for them, to raise them and train them. For widows whose, many times, their sole means of income came from a husband. It wasn't the culture that we live in now where there's dual incomes and, and wives are working the same as husbands are working. So if you lost your husband, many times you were left destitute and in great difficulty. But just because our culture is different... And just because wives work now and husbands work now doesn't mean that our hearts should beat any less for those who find themselves in very difficult situations. If you've ever spent time talking to somebody who's lost a husband or even lost a spouse, even though this is specific to wives who've lost husbands, try talking to someone who's lost their spouse of many years. When the Bible says that two become one when you get married, it's true. And you experience life together. And so not only is there a financial hardship that is experienced, there is such an emotional toll of no longer having companionship to experience life together with. When we sit in our churches and we sit in service and we sit in our, our, our conference rooms and we're planning out the year and we're planning out schedules and calendars, you know what rarely ever comes up? What are we doing for widows? How do we make sure they feel involved and included and embraced and loved? Those who've lost a spouse, those who have experienced divorce and have found themselves where they used to be with someone, now alone, trying to figure things out. It is incredibly hard. It is incredibly difficult. And God invites and encourages and even commands you and I to show love to those who have experienced this kind of pain. Having a mother who has lost a husband, my father at age 51, 
I've seen this firsthand. I've heard her talk about what it's like to wake up in the morning and your house is quiet. Some of you are thinking, man, that sounds amazing. It's not when you've lost a spouse. To have no one who's buying you flowers anymore. Taking you out on a date. It's not the same. It's not the same even when son sends flowers on Mother's Day or whenever. I need to do a better job of that. It's not the same. And it is our responsibility as men and women who profess to live godly to care about the things that God cares about. How do we show honor in this situation? Well, you make sure they're taken care of. That means you sacrifice. You go without so someone can go with. Plain and simple. It means you're inviting. It means you're making the phone call. It means you're making the text message. You're reaching out and you're engaging and driving the relationship. It is our responsibility and yours to embrace and be the initiator. Financially, to be the initiator. Relationally, it is. Paul doesn't stop there, though, because he starts this list with widows on it, but then he continues with this conversation. It's such a unique one because in many ways it comes out of nowhere, and it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would warrant godly conduct. How does caring for this people group Make me godly. Easy. Jesus said to the Pharisees when he rebuked the fool out of them, he says that you, you honor me with your words, but your heart is far from me. Meaning you talk a big game. You know all the, the, the song lyrics. You know when to raise your hands. You know when to have them down. You know how to kneel. You know how to pray. You know how to do all the Christian-y things. But what really catches the heart of God is when your actions demonstrate true transformation. That means that what you value and what culture values look nothing alike. He goes on and he says, you know what you, you, know what you need to do? Chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Now, this could be an awkward portion of text for me to begin teaching and preaching because it sounds like I'm saying, honor me. And hear me, that isn't my heart today. But to help you embrace this idea, whether you leave this church and never return, you need to live in such a way where you know how to honor those who are leading you. And in this church, we have people who act as elders. Maybe they haven't been formally recognized as elders or pastors, but they function in that, in that seat. They teach. They minister. 
You heard Ron here in just a, just a, a minute ago. You can see the authority that he carries when he, when he is praying, when he's talking, when he's minister. That's worthy of honor. Someone who's investing in you in such a capacity. Some of you have met Catherine who leads our campus ministry here. You know what? She's investing in people. She's working hard to understand the word and to be able to teach it and to be able to preach it and to be able to impart it into people's lives. That's worthy of honor. That's worthy of honor. And it actually, the Bible says it's worthy of double honor. Some of you, you've had like a regular Oreo. Uh-huh. But the double stuff. Oh, yeah, the double stuff, Oreo. Oh, that's, Jesus is all up in that, okay? How do we show honor to our leaders? How, honestly, how do we show honor to leadership? Does it look like people just coming and serving me at my beck and call or at someone's call at our church? No, no, it doesn't. What has made this conversation such an awkward conversation in many churches is that many people have experienced an abuse of leadership. But just because there is abuse in leadership doesn't mean that we now abstain from honoring leadership. So how do we now honor healthy and good and righteous leaders in our midst, those who are preaching and teaching? Well, what does it look like? Number one, the Bible teaches that you would really, truly be someone who's prayerful on behalf of those who are leading you. You need to know I covet your prayers. There are times where no one would understand what's going through my head. Most of the time that's the case. But what's unique about church leadership is that most, most people in the world aren't caring about how you raise your kids. They're not worried about whether or not you really know Jesus or how you can grow spiritually. Most people aren't thinking about how to have a conversation with you in such a way that you know is going to hurt, but you know they desperately need to hear it. And you're tormented at night, wondering, how am I going to talk to this person? God, I don't want to talk to them about this, but I have to talk to them about this. And that's what makes ministry leadership unique. And it's also why your leaders need so much of your faithful prayers. It's why Paul invites so much prayer on his behalf to have courage. Pray for me that I will boldly proclaim the gospel. Do you know why? Because it's easy to be afraid. It's easy. Pray for me. Pray for the leadership team of this church. And the scriptures also say to not entertain accusations against your leadership. Unless, of course, like a lot of people are coming forward saying the same thing. In our culture, we, we're the cancel culture right now. Meaning if you even heard, you, you heard a rumor of something that somebody might have done. 17 years ago, Bam, they're done. You cut them out. You cancel them out of your life. That, 
there, that's no way to live. That's no way to be led. How do you honor your leaders? Well, you don't entertain accusation. Meaning when someone wants to squabble, when someone wants to gripe or complain about something that someone did, but you know your pastor and you know your leader, you shut it down. You do not entertain it. Entertainment means you sit. Like you're going to the AMC movie theater and you're enjoying this conversation. Wow, this is good stuff. Tell me more. You know what lunch was like growing up at my church in, in, in St. Louis? <laughs> going out for, for the, the, the brunch or the lunch after service was really just time for anybody that was there to breathe fire about what was happening in the church. I don't like the carpet. I don't like the kitchen. So-and-so's got more stuff in the refrigerator and it needs to get out of there. I, you know, the Bible school class was this. The preacher did that. The list goes on. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you might have grown up that way or maybe you do it now. Don't entertain accusations. You know what that does for your leaders? Gives them courage. Gives them so much courage. Helps confidence knowing that your people love being led. Honor your leaders. Thirdly, and this one is going to require some context. One of the, the more divisive passages in the Bible that has been misused terribly in American uh, Christianity. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Some of your Bible says honor. So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect, but just, just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. Now, I'm going to lead us down a rabbit hole for a second. Because right now in our economy and in our culture, this cannot be said without proper context. Telling someone to submit to an authority does not imply that the authority is morally approved. I'm going to say that one more time. Telling someone to submit to an authority does not imply that the authority is morally approved. And when we talk about slavery here in the book of Timothy, people used this passage to endorse slavery in America in ways that it was never intended to be used. Paul is not endorsing slavery here in the book of Timothy. That is a lie, that is nonsense, and is, it is removing it from the further context of all of Scripture. It's just inaccurate, and it is poor theology. And it is a travesty that American churches used to use this passage to somehow oppress people because of the color of their skin. That is what we like to call wicked. Okay? 
And when we talk about false teachers needing to be confronted, which was the purpose of this letter to Timothy in the first place, this is the kind of nonsense that needed somebody to get up in their face and say, enough is enough. That being said, the slavery that we are talking about in the Greco-Roman Empire is not the same kind of slavery we experience in America. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on skin color. It was based on economic status. Meaning the amount of slaves that were sold into slavery because parents couldn't afford to keep their kids was very high. The amount of people who worked as slaves in conditions that allowed them to make money, they worked as engineers, they worked as doctors, they worked in people's homes, they worked on literally in every possible place you could think of. And I'm not somehow suggesting that slavery was a, a great quality of life. But if you understand the empire, it was very common practice for someone to be a slave and then to literally purchase their own freedom because they had made enough money to do so. The conditions in which slaved, slaves worked, it is not the same kind of slavery that we th immediately think of with uh, American slavery. But what Paul is saying still stands true today. He is telling people to honor those who are pressing them, who are mistreating them. How do you even do that? Honor those who are mistreating you. Now, for clarity's sake, I am not saying that, that there is never a time for protest. I'm not saying that there is not a time for a full-on blasted fight and argument over things. If you know me well enough, you know I'm always up for a good, a good rumble. I'm not suggesting that you, you shouldn't, at times, whether it's something politically, whether it's something personal for you. But what Paul is making clear in this moment of Scripture is that the manner in which we carry ourselves, including the manner of our protest, shouldn't convolute the message of the gospel. I want you to hear this. Protest and protest away. Be frustrated. Be mad. Fight for change in our culture and in our cities and in our nation because we need it, especially as it pertains to race in our country. One of the reasons we moved here to start this church was because we believe that here in Kennesaw, God wanted us to build a church and see a church built that was multi-ethnic and multi-generational. That's hard to do. I have learned some hard, hard lessons. But what I also know from the scriptures is this. 
that God's name, chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, his name and his teaching should not be slandered. Meaning that the manner in which we protest, the manner in which we try to make things known, the, the manner in which issues are being born and brought to light, should not compete with the ultimate message that people need to hear more than anything else. And that is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that the only chance for hope and redemption and restoration ultimately lies and falls in Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the Son of, the, of, of God Himself. He's the risen king, and that is the heart of the gospel. And what was happening here is that we had servants in the house and slaves in the house who were fighting. They'd become Christians because the gospel and God's heart is for who? Those who've been forgotten, those who've been marginalized, those who've been for, who, who are poor. It's for everybody, mind you, but God has a special place in his heart for those who are lost and forgotten. And so who was it that clung to the gospel the fastest? Women. Widows. And who else? Servants and slaves. And when you look at many of the problems that existed in the early church, many of them were figuring out how to, to minister to the needs of such a quickly growing population of, for instance, widows. God's heart is for those who've been forgotten, those who've been broken, those who are hurting. And he appeals to those who are, who are here in the city of Ephesus who have gotten saved, who now think that they can use their salvation as a means of rebelling against their masters. And it was getting in the way, maybe a poor use of words, it was, it was convoluting the message of Jesus' salvation. And what Paul was worried about is that a culture from top to bottom that had embraced this kind of living, that Christianity would be associated with rebellions. And he didn't want that. And so how do we now yield in such a way to someone who is oppressing us? It takes nothing short of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It's nothing short of God's transformative power that would allow you to stand and be mistreated for the sake of Jesus being honored and glorified. How does that even make sense? It doesn't in a normal economy. But it's also why when Paul appeals to the servant in the house in this passage, the volume, the, 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 the ministry that is demonstrated by someone who lives this way, who turns the other cheek, 
who honors someone who isn't actually worthy of honor, who hasn't lived in such a way that's worthy of such an honor, what does it do? It speaks to the truth of who Jesus is because only Jesus Christ could change someone's heart so that they could live like that. Only Jesus can do it. gospel is about God showing honor to men and women who are poor, who are unworthy, and who are lost and forgotten. We're sinners. And when we show honor to one another, even those who don't deserve it, we give the world a glimpse of the very nature of God. He died for you while you were still a sinner. While you contributed nothing to the equation, Jesus Christ came for you. He died for you. And he honored you. Father, we thank you this morning. Church, stand to, stand to your feet with me in this moment. What does it look like to honor someone who is oppressing you? Who's being ugly to you? Who's being difficult to you? Who's making life hard for you? It doesn't just look like ignoring it. It doesn't look like talking bad and blabbing and being disrespectful. What does it actually look like? Once again, it looks like praying. It looks like getting on your knees seeking God's heart. It looks like you finding a place in your heart of hearts to speak well of those who are undeserving of your words. I know for me when there are people in my life that I just they've made life difficult for me the way to release bitterness in my own heart is to pray and then figure out ways to speak well of them. And it's amazing the poison that leaves my own heart as we cultivate a culture of honor. Father, we thank you here in this place, in this church, as we strive to become the kind of people who honor the things that you honor, to esteem and value those who you esteem and value. Lord, you honor the widow. God, we, you honor those who have been broken, who've been lost and forgotten. Lord, you, you, you teach us to honor our leaders, even leaders, Lord, that, that aren't leading in a way that deserves honor. You teach us, Lord, to show respect, to yield, to be submitted because it points people to you. Father, help us today 
Lord, I thank you that you haven't called us to be passive. You've invited us to stand up for what's true and for what's right. And yet also to keep the message of Jesus Christ, your son, who died for us central to every single thing that we're doing. This is a trustworthy sentence that deserves full acceptance. Jesus, you are worthy. You're worthy of our worship.